Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. I'm here with Matthew and Aaron. Hey, great to be with you again, AJ. Love it. Thanks for having me. It's week six. Man, it's hard to believe that we're already six weeks into the new year. Yeah. How are you guys doing with the reading? Mostly great. Yeah, I've, I've discovered that I don't quite like the layout of our Bible reading plan, and so I've been restructuring it a little bit to where I'll get a good chunk of the Old Testament in one day, and then maybe more Psalm or more Proverb than what they give. So in as all things are, in, in retrospect, things are much more clear as I look at this plan, and I don't think it's an awful plan but I don't think the layout is as helpful as I imagined it would be. Matthew, have you found that to be the same? Yeah. Sometimes I just kind of keep reading because it, it doesn't make sense to stop. You so. just love reading the Bible. Well, Amen. Pretty yeah. much. Hallelujah. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I like taking looking at the full week of what they're making us do for that week, and then I'll just parcel it out the way I want to do it. Yeah. And believe it or not, some days I don't even do it. And I just combine extra stuff later on. Last time, God's wrath was poured out on the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Aaron, do you want to start there and walk us through the reading in Exodus? Yeah, so we're picking up in Exodus 14. And Israel has just escaped through the Red Sea. And this is one of those weird points, as you were pointing out earlier, Matthew, where the you just need to keep reading because they leave you, you know, halfway through the event. Uh, but Moses stretches his hand over the sea, and the Lord parts the sea. Uh, The Israelites are saved. The Egyptians are destroyed. And it says in verse 28 that not even one of them survived. And as a result, verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. And that's what God was trying to do. He was trying to draw people to himself, to reveal himself. And part of us wants to say, this is great. Israel is on a good track. Um, But as we get later on into the book of Exodus, we'll realize that they are maybe a little bit more fickle in their belief and not faithful in their fear. So these are some of the conundrums we'll encounter down the road. So you could say that the Israelites were saved through the waters of the Red Sea, and it reminded me of a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Aaron, what is Paul talking about here? Okay. I know that we can't spend the rest of our podcasts on this, though I think it is interesting enough material to be able to. So I would just point you to a sermon that I preached on this text um, on our church website where I talk about this at much more length. But in a very short answer, I would say that Paul is bringing the scriptures of Israel to bear on the church in a particular situation And in Corinth, there are individuals who are eating food offered to idols, and they're saying, we can do this because we know that these idols don't represent true deities. So, you know, what our counterparts in Israel didn't really understand, we understand. So we have a special knowledge that allows us to eat food that's been offered to idols. And and Paul is working to show them that this is not the case. 
look, you, you think you're safe because you have special knowledge and you think you're safe because you're eating of the Lord's Supper and you think you're safe because you've been baptized. These are all issues that have shown up in 1 Corinthians up to this point. If you recall in chapter one, Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except for the house of Stephanus. And then he's going to deal with the Lord's Supper issue in 1 Corinthians 11. So he's looking at them and saying, see Israel's story in yourself. They pass through the Red Sea, which is baptism of a sort. They ate manna from heaven, and that was not enough to make them safe from God's judgment. And what you're doing is putting yourself in the sight of God's judgment. You're not pleasing God, and you shouldn't have the confidence because of your baptism, because of the Lord's Supper, because of this knowledge to think that you can escape the wrath of God because of these things alone. You need to truly know and fear the Lord. And that's what the Israelites needed to learn in the wilderness as well. Um, instead of testing God, they need to, to respond to God's test of them. Now, as you guys probably recall, we also connected this to Matthew's gospel, where he records Jesus's baptism. And we talked about why John would be baptizing people and what this would indicate. And I tried to argue that it's a retelling of Israel's story, where in baptism, we're dramatically performing these acts that accompany God's redemption, but don't in of themselves redeem us. So passing through the waters is really passing from death to life. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good thing to highlight because what what was Israel's position in Egypt? They were really in the realm of the dead, right? They had no hope, they had no life, they had no flourishing, and they passed from the realm of death into the realm of life on their way to God's kingdom, which would be established in the promised land. And that's really what our baptism signifies as well, but in a truer and greater way because of Jesus who went before us, who died and rose again and is bringing his kingdom to bear. It's interesting, too, that you'd think the Israelites, they would have had a clear picture that they had nothing to do with this saving act that that God did. They didn't do anything. They had to just walk through, but God did the saving. And it's the same way with our salvation as well, where we, you know, God does the saving and we have to be willing to be saved. Yeah, I think that's right. But like Israel, we also have to be willing to say that we needed saving because as we've read for this week's reading, there are multiple points where Israel says to Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Would it not have been better for us to be in Egypt right now as slaves because at least we'd have something to eat? And so they thought we haven't been redeemed for anything. We haven't passed from death to life. We've passed from something kind of bad to death. So we also have to have a right vision of the world and what God is doing in it. That's kind of that whole ph- phenomenon. You don't you don't remember the past as negatively as it actually was. That's something that all people do. Because uh, Pharaoh did the same thing. W- once he let them go, he was like, wait a second, why did I let them go? It was great having them here as slaves. And that's why he chases them and tries to get them back. So... Mm-hmm. He made a decision and then thought, oh, wait, it was better with them here and all these plagues. And then similarly, they leave. They're like, yay, we're free. And then, oh, wait, no, the desert's awful. I wish we were in Egypt. Like, I I found that interesting because that's a very common (laughs) human phenomenon where you remember the past more fondly than it really was. Yeah, it's a very human thing to do, especially in terms of, as Christians, our captivity to sin, right? We can start to say... 
man, life was just better when I was not with Jesus, which is not the case. And there are moments where God gives us the grace to see that. Um, but we can start to think life in my own terms was better when we really know it's not. I have a, I have a maybe somewhat random question, kind of going back to the whole food offered to idols thing. Is there anything nowadays that is like would be a similar parallel to that that we would encounter in our culture? Yeah, so once again, I would point you to that sermon because oh. I think I had listed some things, and I can't remember now, yeah. but I think one thing that does come to mind, I think a situation where if you were sitting down to eat with someone of another faith, and they they believed that their prayer before your eating of that food actually brought the deity's presence into the room or actually offered it up to the deity in worship or something. I think that would be a similar instance. And I think the Twin Cities are multicultural enough that that's not too far-fetched. Um, or perhaps like this veneration of ancestors in some cultures. I think someone at our, in our church at the time asked about that because they had relatives, um, I think, in Japan who would worship ancestors. And I, I think maybe there are some overlapping spheres there. What about those like halal grocers? Isn't that kind of like a religious grocery store? I I don't know enough about it. I've oh. never been in one, and I've seen the signs. I've never asked about it, though. Oh. I always think of the Hebrew word halal, like the halal psalms, hallelujah, where you just are praising the Lord. So oh. I've never really thought that, about it. Is that what it means? It's hallelujah grocery store? I don't think so. Oh. And That'd it's probably cool. not Hebrew. Oh, yeah. Speaking of praising the Lord... After the Israelites were saved, what happens? What happens in chapter 15? In chapter 15, we have a poetic recounting of everything that happened. And I love Exodus 15 because these individuals are singing to the Lord. Moses and the Israelites sang the song, and we hear them describing these events with really beautiful poetry, and it shapes your imagination. It shapes the way that you think about these things, and it gives us, I think, a category for describing the works of God in ways that are poetic and not scientific. And we need that. We need it because it expresses something we wouldn't otherwise understand. And it helps us when we read the rest of the Bible and talk about what God has done to continue using that language and appreciating what it does for us, even when it doesn't meet the bar of what an atheistic scientist might want us to say. So, for example, I think we can talk about what God does in poetic ways and say it's true, even though it's not scientifically accurate. So, for example, we can talk about how the sun rises and sets, but that's not scientifically accurate. The sun doesn't rise and set, but we can talk about it meaningfully. And, and when we talk about the sun rising on a cloudless morning, it speaks to us. And we can talk about God's works, where God blows his breath in 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 parts to see, and, and that's meaningful and important and true, um, and this this helps us do it. But they respond with worship, singing to the Lord. I think that's a really good example for us. And then Moses' uh, sister Miriam and her little choir, we might think, came out with tambourines, singing to the Lord. But ultimately, we want to think about the content, right? And the content is really rejoicing, not in anything but the Lord's reign that will be established forever and ever. The thankfulness that the Israelites had did not last very long as they left Egypt physically, but Egypt was still in their heart. 
we start to see them complaining and grumbling about food and drink. And that started only three days later. Only three days. It's interesting how so many things happen over a span of three days in the Bible. And this is one of them. They journeyed for three days into the wilderness without finding water. And then they grumbled to Moses. He cried to the Lord and they received drinkable water. Uh, But then the Lord tested them there. And he said in verse 26, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his command and keep all his statues. I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So whatever whatever ailments you have, whatever you're experiencing, it's not like the plagues in Egypt. It's not God destroying them. He's going to work to preserve them. But shortly after that, we hear more about Israel grumbling and complaining in chapter 16. And they say this in verse 3, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Isn't that so different than the end of Exodus 14 and Exodus 15? They, they would rather have died by the Lord's hand in, in Egypt. And that's three days. Well, this is later on. This oh. is after that. Um, but God provided for them again, and he gives them manna. He gives them quail, meat, and bread, right? But then as they receive bread, it comes with a stipulation. This bread is going to be something that directs your attention to me. So instead of gathering every day, or, or just, you know, gathering once because you don't trust that you're going to, that the Lord will keep providing. You need to gather just enough for that day. So every day you go out and gather, so you'll know that every day God is providing for you, except for on the Sabbath. Rest on that day, don't gather on that day. But right away, verse 20 of chapter 16, they didn't listen to Moses. So some of them left part of it until the morning. They gathered more than they needed, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. Do you think that symbolizes, like you said, it's having faith that God will provide for you day by day? But is that also, I mean, I guess maybe hand in hand kind of symbolizes don't get ahead of God. Don't try to take more than God's trying to offer you. Because if you do, things are going to go rotten. Things aren't going to go well because it's not what God had for you or it's not the amount that God had for you. Yeah, and I think probably what motivates that is the lack of faith and trust in God, right? Um, And I I think maybe it also connects to Jesus's prayer uh, where he's praying to the Lord. We call it the Lord's Prayer, um, asking the Lord to give us our daily bread. Well, I think he's recalling imagery from the Exodus, and what he's teaching us is not that we have to recite those exact words, but we take a posture of dependence on the Lord and we receive things from his hand day by day, trusting in him. Contentment going along with that, I guess, to be content with today's bread is enough for today. And then I guess just trusting kind of day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the next thing that I want to talk about in our lineup for uh, this section is jumping all the way up to Exodus 17, where the Amalekites attack the Israelites. And, Great story. And they go to battle, um, and then Moses was raising up the staff that 
we've already seen has been used by God, right? It's it's God's staff, but Moses uses it. He puts it over the sea and it parts, right? He, he has experienced it turn into a snake and all of these things. So it's not that the staff is magical, but it's a symbol of the Lord's power, we might say. And as long as Moses is holding this up, Israel prevailed. Whenever he put it down, the Amalekites prevailed. And so when his hands grew heavy, Moses sat down on a stone and Aaron and this other guy, her, supported his hands and um, his hands remained up in the air until the sun went down. They won the battle. Um, And the Lord says to Moses in verse 14, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And the Amalekites are descendants of Esau, right? So if we're tracing this back, we see their heritage. Um, and the Lord is going to be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. So later in the year, we'll read where Saul is supposed to wipe out all of the Amalekites, and he fails to do so, right? And their king, Agag, is taken captive, and eventually um, the prophet comes and hacks him to pieces, so he dies. But this this king, Agag, comes to represent the Amalekites, and then the term Agagite becomes a pejorative term for anyone who's an enemy of Israel. So later on, we'll see in the book of Esther where Haman is described as an Agagite. It's just saying he's an enemy of Israel. And the the Jews refer to the Romans with this term. Um, we might say someone's a Nazi now, you know, if we wanted to communicate that, even though they might not philosophically be a Nazi or related to any Nazis, right? So so you can start to see the way that um, people are identified as either for Israel and therefore again for God or against Israel and against God. So I've got some questions and thoughts about the story where uh, Israel defeats the Amalekites. Do you think that there is... I guess, I don't know, extra significance or extra lessons being taught with the way things like this play out. Because that's why I took it. If I need to be rebuked, feel free to do so in the <laughs> end. Um, but, you know, he's God. If you want to, he could just smite the evil people and the Israelites wouldn't have to do anything. So obviously they're battling. They have to do something. Similarly, Moses, what, he goes up on the mountain to oversee it. He has to hold his hands up, the staff and all that. So he's physically having to participate in, you know, in order to have success. And similarly, once his arms get tired and they go down, they start losing. And I'm just like, well, doesn't, I didn't think this, but you could think, well, doesn't God know his heart? He means well, his arms are just tired. God should just let him keep winning, even though his arms are tired. But it's like, no, like it, it's a real thing. And then his, whatever, two guys with him literally physically have to hold his arms up in order for Moses to do what he needs to do in order for the Israelites to win. And like, just thinking about that, I, is, are, is it appropriate to draw parallels from that just with kind of our Christian life of like, we, like, we really need other people in our life to like, help us and hold us up. Like we're not capable of, you know, overcoming whether trials or temptation or whatever, like completely on our own. Like we need to be there for each other to sometimes 
physically pull somebody out of somewhere or just be there to talk to. Like that's where my mind went. I don't know if I'm overreaching for an application, but it just seemed like there was a lot of parallels there where you could apply it. Yeah, I th- I think I'm okay with that. And I don't think I'll rebuke you. Yes. I know I won't rebuke you, but I would want to frame it in this way. Right. At the end of the account that starts in chapter 17, where the Israelites had complained, there's this note in verse 7 that they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And I think this next narrative is inserted right there because the point is, as long as this staff, which is representative of God's presence with Israel, is raised, they're going to win. Is God with them? Yes. And here's the proof. We all see it and we're winning the battle while it happens. Because later on in in our reading, we're going to come to a place where God says, you go into the promised land, I'm going to give it to you, but I'm not going to go with you. My, My presence is not going to go with you. And I think this is a whole scene that demonstrates they need God's presence. They can't do this without God. And to their question, is God with us or not? He is. He's with us. Now, I think we can go a step further and say that all of this will happen because of God. Um, but he's forming a community of people and a people a, a community of people who need to rely on his presence. And these individuals are assisting Israel by assisting Moses in recognizing and submitting to God's presence. So I think it's maybe a second level application, we might say, but I think there is a path to get there to say we need each other, not just as a self-helpy sort of way, but to direct each other towards God's presence that really is among us. That was one thing I kind of meant to say, but I omitted, is that God does and want to use others and wants to use each other in order to do his work through us, you know, to help help each other kind of get where we need to go. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think a theme is introduced here a little bit where the next narrative is another situation where Moses needs assistance. So Moses needs assistance here. And then in chapter 18, he's going to have an encounter with his father-in-law where his father-in-law sees, you can't keep this up. And I think interestingly, his father-in-law faithfully prefaces and if God wants it to be this way, essentially, uh, he just tells Moses, look, listen, pay attention to my advice. And if God will, if God will let this be, then you need to get some guys who are God-fearing, who are trustworthy, who hate dishonest prophet, and they need to assist you. Um, so verse 23, if you do this and God so directs you, you'll be able to endure. And also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. You could almost stick that line in, hey, Aaron and her, come help me. You know, if I can do this and if God is willing for this to happen, everyone's going to go home today. Uh, so so this is introduced where Moses is not their savior. They really need God. Yeah, props to Jethro. He invented delegation right here. Well, I don't know if he invented it, but he certainly changed the national structure of Israel <laughs> in the way events happened at this point. And I don't think we should read this and say the principle God wants us to learn from this is that we should all listen to our father-in-laws and do whatever they say. I I don't know that we want to take it that way. Definitely not. Um, But we do see a guy who recognizes the greatness of God. That's how he starts it out, right? Verse 11, I know the Lord is greater than all the gods because he did this. And he goes on to show Moses, you're not God. 
you're not as great as God is. You need others, right? And so this the narrative progresses from there as Israel now approaches Sinai. Which is what the rest of the book of Exodus is. Yeah, so exactly. So we get to Sinai, the covenant is formed, the covenant legislation is given. It's almost like a marriage ceremony that takes place as we get to the end of our reading. Um, but before that, uh, the, the instructions for the tabernacle are given, or at least they start to be given. Um, I think we'll save some of that conversation for our episode next week. But here I would just want to point out that as we come to the covenant ceremony in Exodus 24, it really is like God becomes the father to Israel here. He's already in Exodus chapter 4 referred to Israel as his firstborn son. But here it's like they now have a blood relationship. People who were previously not kinsmen together are now related by blood, so to speak. So Moses sets up an altar that represents God. He sets up 12 pillars that represents Israel, sacrifices a bull, and then throws blood on the altar and on on the pillars. And it's almost like if you can imagine a blood brother oath. I, I once watched this episode of Andy Griffith where Opie and his friend, like, I think they cut their palms and they have a whatever. I don't, I don't recall all the details. I think actually Andy and Opie end up doing this, but like you bury the owl feather in under a full moon or something, but, but there's a reason their blood is exchanged. And I remember there was this guy who I became friends with when I was in like, I don't know, third grade. And we poked our, our thumbs to make blood come out and we became blood brothers. We're actually not friends anymore. <laughs> but but we go through these things and that symbolizes we were not we were once not blood. We were not related. And now we are. And and there's a mixture of metaphors here. Israel becomes God's son, but in another metaphor, Israel becomes God's wife, because this is almost like a marriage ceremony. And in both cases, later on in the prophets, Israel is described as a disobedient son and an adulterous wife. So this is a really important scene. I just want to say the end of 20, chapter 20 through, what, 23? Yeah, most 23. All those laws, that, that was interesting. Like, I don't know. I don't know why I found that. That was like one of the most interesting parts to me. What did you find interesting about them? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to I don't know how to phrase it. Just the just kind of how to view things. You know, cuz it was kind of like if you let your neighbor borrow your donkey and you're not there and then something happens to it, it's like I don't know. Either they are or aren't liable for it. Or I think they are liable for it. But if you're there too and he's using your donkey and something happens, then he's not liable for it because you were there. It was like, maybe you could have done something about it. You were overseeing it. So it's kind of on you. So I don't know, just all that stuff, like all the logic and the kind of like, uh, like the principles behind it. It's like, oh, this is apparently this is the right thing to do in this situation. And this is who's at fault. But it was in, it was interesting. The, there, all right, hold on, question though. There's one part, 23, it says... Don't, it says, don't be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And then after that, it, where is it? It says something else about a poor man. It says, don't pervert justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. So it's like, don't be overly sympathetic to them, but don't take advantage of them either because they're poor. You know what I mean? It's just like random principles like that. It's just good to remember. Like, oh, okay, yeah. You got to remember to like 
be upright and fair and like level-headed about everything. Yeah, that's true. I personally found it very boring. Oh, like watching an American football game. Oh, oh man, oh. that oh. is both delightful. It makes a ton of sense because Matthew and I love watching American football, and we both loved reading these texts all over those. Laws. So maybe there's a problem with you, AJ. That's true. There was a silver <laughs> lining though on both accounts. I was I was thinking that the old the Old Testament laws they do they do show us God's character. They show us His righteousness in how he wants us to reflect his character. And we see that in the New Testament too. And I was just thinking that, you know, his righteousness and character is enshrined in the Old Testament law and then also in the teaching in the New Testament. Yeah. But it's like if you loan somebody a leaf blower and they break it, it's like they basically tell you in here what you should think about that and if they're liable or not. I mean, like seriously, because if you're borrowing somebody's ox or donkey... You're getting yard work done with that back however many thousands of years ago. It's like the same thing. If you loan somebody something and it breaks or they lose it or they loan it to you and you break it or you lose it, it, it gives you principles of how to, um, you know, how to what adjust the situation, how to make it come yeah. out fairly. They were specific too, though. Yeah, this is what I want to say about these things. And this is so complicated. How do Christians relate to the Old Testament law? And in part, I want to say we should not probably say we need to obey these things um, because it's not the case. This this is not the law that God has given for his kingdom people in the new covenant. He did in the old. Now, what I think we one, one profitable way of reading these texts is, well, I'll, I'll lay it out here. You guys be the judge of this is, whether this is helpful or not. But um, even though I learned this, at a dispensational school where I would probably think about things differently. This, I think, was actually really quite helpful. When you look at the Ten Commandments, TCs, right? Ten Commandments. Uh, ten words. Um, the, really, the Ten Words, but we can call them the Ten Commandments. You have the TCs, and then you have the two greatest commands, the, the capital letter TCs. So the two greatest commands, love God, love your neighbor, and then you have the Ten Commandments, and then you have all of these case laws, for better words, that demonstrate or connect to one of the TCs of the 10, and then further back to the big TC, love God, love your neighbor. So I would want to read these things and say how in that cultural context was an individual to love God and love their neighbor in the particular setting that's described and not so much say there's a principle here to be applied, but there's a demonstration of what it looks like to love God and neighbor in a practical setting. Now, there might be some closer parallels than others. Uh, so, for example, some that there are probably not great parallels when it's dealing with a master and his slaves. Well, I, we don't want to say there's a principle here that we should apply, probably. Uh, but if we find ourselves in a parallel situation— you know, a genuinely comparable situation, maybe we can see how to love God and neighbor there. And I think that's what you're doing. You're saying in both of our worlds, there are situations where we lend something to our neighbor or when we borrow something. And if I'm if I'm borrowing Matthew's TV so I can watch three American football games at once, <laughs> um, and I happen to break one of them in transport, well... The loving thing to do, well, the unloving thing to do is to just return it 
and pretend that he broke it when he was driving it back. Yeah, you know, or um, I get something from Amazon and I break it and then I send it back saying it came broken. That is not loving God or loving neighbor, right? We we can learn some of these things, um, but it's not a regulatory law for our life. Okay, I'm I'm good with that because that's what I was going to say. It gives examples and ways to apply them. I mean, it gives ways to apply, to apply, I think, a lot of the principles. Obviously, like you said, some of them aren't going to really apply as much as far as the slaves thing. But yeah, I think I think there can be really useful parallels drawn. I think ultimately, they show us that none of us can meet these laws and obey them perfectly. And they point towards someone in the future who will do that and who is born under the law to redeem the law. Yes, and we've encountered that individual in the book of Matthew, and it might be a good time for us to direct our attention to the second part of this podcast. As we move to the book of Matthew, Jesus is uh, rebuking the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priest, as uh, he frequently does for their, well, foolishness and lack of faith and hard hearts. Um, kind of a different, uh, difficult passage to make sense of. They're wanting a sign of the end of the age. There are a few things that we want to notice in Matthew chapter 23, at least that I would want to draw your attention to. Jesus, in verse 33, calls them snakes and a brood of vipers. And once again, I would just want to show how Jesus connects these individuals, even though they are connected by heritage and DNA to Abraham, they're now really connected to the seed of the serpent that we encountered early on in Genesis 3. And Jesus is talking to them as individuals who are going to ultimately be on the losing side of history, we could say, because they're connected to the seed of the serpent who will be crushed by the seed of the woman. In addition, I would also want to point out that Jesus talks about the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and in some ways that the Old Testament is ordered in, in the Hebrew canon of Scripture, these are the individuals who are righteous people anyway, who are murdered at the start and at the end of the canon. So a lot of people use this as an argument for having the Bible starting with Genesis and ending with Second Chronicles, I believe. So this shows up in, if you're reading a, a book on the order of the Bible or something, I'm sure you guys would probably do that at some point, you'll see this referenced as evidence for kind of a different arrangement of the Old Testament than what we use. So murdering a righteous person, is that foreshadowing anything later in the book of Matthew? Well, I think Jesus is not even subtly foreshadowing, but he's saying uh, some of them you will kill and crucify, referring to the prophets, sages, and scribes. And obviously, he is going to be the first among many. Matthew, I know that you love reading the Bible, but you probably haven't spent a lot of time studying systematic theology or something or entering into debates about the end times. So I would be interested in hearing how a somewhat neutral observer understands Jesus's comments about the end times. Oh, boy. What do you make of Jesus's words in Matthew 24? I mean, it sounds like stuff's going to get bad. You know, stuff stuff's going to be going bad. And um, based on what he said, there will be not specific signs, but 
That's like verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's just like you're gonna you're gonna kind of see it coming from a distance, or you're gonna be able to tell, you know, something's happening over there. Like, you know, there's gonna be obvious signs, I guess, that you see where you're like, this feels like it could be uh could be ending. It's kind of what JC was talking about. Um, and then similarly, uh, you know, like he says. There's going to be two guys in the field working, poof, one's gone. Two women, whatever, spinning yarn, poof, one of them's gone. So I think that's... And, and what do you think that's referring to? When uh, Jesus comes and snatches us back, takes us. Okay. We're up. Can I try to convince you... Up and out. ...of a different reading of Matthew 24? Yeah, that won't be hard to do. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's okay. I think the way that you've described this is the way that most people read it. And I I want to preface my comments by saying it's, of course, disputed. You know, search the scriptures, see if these things are so. But I think the way that I'm about to describe it might make this text more understandable for some people. I think that'd be good. So in Matthew 24, Jesus is going out of the temple, and his disciples came up and called attention to its buildings. So the whole temple complex, they're, they're essentially saying, isn't this temple so beautiful? You know, that's what the other accounts sort of fill in the gaps. And he replies to them and says, do you see all these things? Referring to the temple's buildings. Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. So then he's sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples approached him and said, tell us when will these things happen? Well, that's referring to the destruction of the temple, right? So they're asking when, when will the temple be destroyed? And then the second question is, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're asking two questions. When, when will the temple be destroyed that you just predicted? And then when will be the sign of your coming in the end of this age, in the, the coming of the kingdom, so to speak? Jesus responds by telling them to watch out because many people are going to come and say that they are the Messiah, right? But they're not because he is, uh, and then people will be persecuted, and then you'll see the abomination of desolation or the abomination that brings desolation is how we should say it, probably, and that desolation is the destruction of the temple. So the abomination of the temple, you know, the, the, Jesus had to cleanse the temple, right, because it's of, of the sins of the people who are running this temple system, well, that abomination brings desolation. It's going to bring the destruction of the temple. And I think that's what he's describing in this text all the way up to verse 28, where, where Jerusalem is essentially destroyed, and this takes place in A.D. 70. So if Jesus is saying this in A.D. 33 or 30, whatever, you know, 40, 35 years later, it comes true. Jerusalem is ransacked. The temple is destroyed. It's an awful and gruesome time. That's the answer to the first question. You know, this, this is what's going to happen. And then it happens in AD 70. And then, verse 29, he says, immediately after the distress of those days, and then he talks about the sign of the Son of Man and the coming of the Son of Man with all of his angels in great power and great glory, and he gathers his elect together, right? So, so, that's answering the second question, is what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, so then he goes on and gives a parable of a fig tree, and then 
He says, verse 36, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So now it's like he's referring back to his initial description of the coming of the Son of Man. And there he says, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone, know the day and the hour. But he describes what it will be like. Okay? Does this make sense so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he says that when he returns, it will be like the days of Noah were. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. We talked about this in our last episode. Until the day Noah boarded the ark. Okay, so this scene of the coming of Christ is described as a scene of salvation and judgment. So in the days of Noah, this is a little interactive moment on our podcast. In the days of Noah, who are the people who receive salvation? Noah and his family. Noah and his family, right? They got on the ark. Who were the people that received judgment? The wicked. Okay. Everybody else. The ones who are swept away by the flood, right? Yeah. Okay. So here it is. They they didn't know know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the, the coming of the Son of Man will be. So the picture he's about to give is people who are swept away, they receive God's judgment. The people who remain are protected in the ark of Christ, so to speak, right? So being swept away is a bad thing, all right? Verse 40, then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. What does it mean to be taken? Swept away by God's judgment. It's not swept up into heaven. No, this is not referring to a rapture of any kind. And in fact, people who believe in the rapture who have read this text, there's this guy at Central Seminary in Plymouth named Kevin Bowder who teaches this. He's very committed to belief in a rapture, and he says this is not a text describing the rapture. People being swept away is a sign that they're being consumed by God's judgment, and the people who remain are receiving salvation, right? So so that's what's going on in this text. So it kind of changes the way you think about it. And if all you had to think about the end times— was Matthew up to this point, you would think, well, there will be a day that comes when none of us know. We we don't know when it's going to be, uh, but Christ will return, and those of us who remain here will live, enter into the kingdom forever, and those who are swept away are carried away in, in judgment. Now, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but when we get to Matthew 25, verse 31, we'll get into this next week, it gives you a very similar picture using very similar language. So I'll save that for for our next episode because I want to draw attention to that again. But the way Jesus talks about the end times is it comes with salvation and judgment, and it's all connected to his return. So this passage is not intended to answer our every question about the end times, but to make the readers aware of the importance of a coming reality. Exactly. And once again, this brings us back to where we started with Exodus 15, it shows how truth is communicated with poetic language and with metaphor. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer with a bullet point of things that will happen. He uses a metaphor. It will be like the days of Noah. And then later on, we'll talk about this next week in chapter 25, he he describes the same events with totally different language. This time with a king who gathers people and sorts them like sheep and goats. So I think it's important for us when we talk about the end times to resist the temptation to try to put it on a chart and describe with 
analytic, scientific accuracy what is going to happen and when, because Jesus doesn't do that for us. Well, we have come to the end of our time in Matthew. Matthew, I'm sorry for hijacking your walk through the book of Matthew, but these texts are so interesting. Thank you for engaging on this really complicated and disputed text and being willing to have your mind changed. No, that's uh, that's great. I love sharing my book with everybody that I can. Yeah, and, and the because this is radio, not television, the listeners can't see your massive change my mind sign connected to the table here. And this will be probably the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> okay. I didn't have strong feelings. I didn't know what it meant. Now I feel less satisfied that I changed your mind. No, it was, it was, you made a good point. I'm on board with you. Amen. I don't know. About this. It's always fun talking to you guys. Thanks for being here. AJ, thanks for leading this once again. You're a great host and producer of this podcast. If you want to listen to more episodes or learn more about our church, you can find us online at www.resurrectionmn.org, or you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube under the same name. Speaking of passing through the waters. Do you have to go to the bathroom? Beautiful segue. No. The Red Red Sea. Sea. Oh, right, right, right. Well, that was like, <coughs> way early on in our passages. This is a lot of reading for... I hope we're recording. That was good.